0: All right, so if you have your Bible, I want to try to get into this, it's kind of a Christmas theme message in sort of a roundabout way, but I think, uh, I think I have something good to say this morning. Galatians chapter 4, and beginning at verse number 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Lord, we praise you today that you came into the world and we celebrate that fact this time of the year. And We're believing, Lord God, that great things are going to come about as a result of the gospel being spread. It is a worldwide global challenge and message, and we're believing for great things in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you greet four or five people? Welcome them to the house of God this morning as you're being seated. I think it's his drums. Are they, are they off? No, they're off. Sometimes if you turn them on, you, it does away with that feedback loop. Is that time of the year again, and boy, did it ever come fast! Already it's Christmas Eve, and before I forget, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year, and great things are happening. Amen. Great progress is being made out here. I finally, yesterday, I got that hallway finished carpet and that lobby finished carpet. I just got one more hallway and lobby to carpet, and basically that part of the job is done. Our tiling guy is up there. He tells me he's going to come soon and put the tile in the bathroom. So that would be awesome to get that done. Praise the Lord. Hopefully by Easter of next year, we'll be able to actually use that facility. And uh, it's going to be an exciting thing. Praise the Lord. So I want to preach a Christmas message, a theme message, sort of in a roundabout way. I want to talk about the God of two testaments. Sherwood Wirt captured the mood of the first Christmas in this description, which he wrote in a Christmas card. He said, The people of that time were being heavily taxed and faced with every prospect of a sharp increase to cover expanding military expenses. The threat of world domination by a cruel, ungodly, power-intoxicated band of men was ever just below the threshold of consciousness. Moral deterioration had corrupted the upper upper levels of society and was moving rapidly into the broad base of the populace. Intense nationalistic feeling was clashing openly with the new and sinister forms of imperialism. Conformity was the spirit of the age. Government handouts were being used with increasing lavishness to keep the population from rising up and throwing out the leaders. Interest rates were spiraling upward, in the midst of an inflated economy, external religious observances were considered a political asset, and abnormal emphasis was being placed upon sports and athletic competition. Racial tensions were at the breaking point. In such a time, and amid such a people, a child was born to a migrant couple who had just signed up for a fresh round of taxation and who were soon to become political exiles. And the child who was born was called, among other things, Emmanuel, God with us. We think our times are special and distinct and unusual, but we don't realize that our times are as any other times. And as at all times, the God who created all of this and brought all of this together is in our midst every day of our lives. He's here to be with us. He has come to take residence in our heart and to find a place in his creation. He is seeking and looking to find a connection and a place within the sphere of his own creation. Now, the greatest story ever told begins, as do all stories, at the beginning, which is Genesis, the book of Genesis, which means the beginnings. And as with any story, with any good story, with any interesting story, there must be several important and necessary components. First of all, we need a something called a story map or a story grid. What is a story map? Well, a story map lays out the plot of the story. It's going to have a plot. There's... A theme to it, and it's going to try to take you where that story is going. So we need a story map to have a complete story. Then every good story has something also called a story arc. A story arc, uh, uh, does, does the story rise to a climax and then fall to a conclusion and a resolution? Does it have a story arc? And finally, Part of that story arc and a main component of that story arc is the, uh, is the uh, struggle between conflict. and Is there conflict? Is there tension in the story? And there must be, uh, there must be tension and there must be resolution in order for, to find a good story arc. And those are the points of a good story. Now our Bible Has all of those. And isn't it a wonderful thing when you think about this collection of books? It's not a book, it's called the book, the Bible, the book, but it is a collection of books. It's 66 books written over 1,500 years that cover some 4,000 to 5,000 years of human history. And what an amazing job and what an amazing collection it is when you put it together. All together, it reads as if it were one book. It has a map. It has a grid. It has a plot. It has a story arc. There is plenty of conflict, and also there is tremendous resolution. It is truly the greatest story ever told. Our story begins with Genesis beginnings. God has just created a harmonious universe. But I'm reading a book uh, that was given to me recently, and uh, it's, about, it's about, among other things, about the Internet and cyber technology. But it talks about there being a basic instinctual aspect of all animal life, and you might even argue plant life as well, because uh, uh, plants, I would say this applies to plants as well, because if you've ever watched, you know, done anything with plants, you know that the leaves turn toward the sun. They turn throughout the day. Slow images, photography will show you that plants are always seeking the face of the sun, and it's instinctual in animals to seek things out, and it's instinctual in human life to seek things out. We, it's, it's a part of what makes us work and, 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 and the part of how we feel challenged and how we get satisfaction is to be seeking out things in the environment. And so it, that's a part of, you know, survival. Uh, if, if we were to live in nature, if we were to live in the wild, we would, we would wake up in the morning. We wouldn't go to the kitchen and check the pantry. We would go out in the woods with a bow and arrow and we would check the trees and we'd check the underbrush. And we would look around and dig in the earth, earth and try to find some plant or some animal that, that, that we could consume because we would need that to live. And animals need to seek things out. I, I have a cat, a Marley cat. And uh, he's very shy. He doesn't like people. I told him today, today's going to be a terrible day for cats because all the kids are coming over, all the families coming over. Marley's going to go in his den. He's going to go in his hole and hide for hours. We won't see hide nor hair of him. But at any other time, Marley, as with any cat, is always checking things out. My wife comes home from the store and puts some bags down on the on the floor, and the next thing you know, the cat is in it. He's got his nose in it. He's digging around. Anything new that comes in the house, and we say cats are curious. Well, that's just part of life: is to seek things out, is to, to check the environment. It, it gives you, gives you satisfaction to always be checking things out and seeking things out, and that really is a part of the creative design of the creator who himself is seeking things out. God, in his majesty, in his plurality, in his universality, didn't become boring just because he has all power and just because he knows all things. He's not boring. He created an environment and a universe That is anything but boring. Amen. It's an exciting and dynamic place that we live in that God shares with us and created for us. And the God that made all this is seeking things out. Basically, he's seeking out a relationship that will satisfy both him and the receiver of that relationship. He's looking for people that can interact with him. And so, since he is not boring, he set up a universe that could be challenged, that could have conflict, that should need to have resolution. We call this technique, or we call this embedded fallacy or frailty in the universe chaos, the law of chaos. God, when he made everything, He's perfect. He could have made everything just perfect, but he designed it with a little tweak in it. That little tweak is chaos. Things could go wrong, things could go missing. And that would be necessary because that little tweak is what will provide the conflict that will lead to the seeking that will result in the resolution. What a story. (laughs) Hallelujah. So chaos is that inbuilt potential for disorder. And since there are no other gods to challenge God's authority, he permitted his creation to do it. He allowed for his creation to challenge his authority so that he could continue to work with it and keep it dynamic and moving and interesting and that he could resolve its conflicts and its <laughs> challenges. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. What amazing God. What an amazing God. Now, when God got all this set up, it was perfect. The world was perfect. And, and Adam came into the world. And God created the first law. What was the first law? The first law was, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. For on the day that you eatest thereof, thou shalt die. It's a law. It's a law. When you break a law, there's got to be a judgment. Right? You break a law, there's a result. You're going you're to face a judgment. There's going to be something that's going to take place in your life that is not going to be pleasant. And so, uh, it wasn't long before that law was broken. And the judgment... Of that law was death. But there's an interesting thing about this God who is perfect and could have created a perfectly boring universe where everything went just exactly in order and there never needed to be anything done at all. And you could just sit back and become a rock if you wanted to, or just be nothing, you know, if you wanted to. But no, God is dynamic and so he needs to work, he needs to seek, he needs to do something. And so well, now there's a problem. There's judgment. You broke the law. There's judgment. Now, I permitted my creation to challenge me and they have challenged me. Now what am I going to do? Start all over again? Throw it out? No. That wouldn't be any fun. Let's see if we can fix it. How many of you broken something at home recently and you took it to your husband or or you you're the husband yourself and you sat down to try My wife's always bringing me stuff. Can you fix this, <laughs> honey? Can you fix this? Amen. My grandkids have, think Pa's legendary. They say, Pa can fix it. Pa can fix it. Some things can't be fixed. Some things we just can't be fixed. We've got to throw it over and start all over. But not that's not impossible for God. He can fix anything and He wants a chance to work at it. So, judgment, judgment, death. That's the sentence of the law. You broke the law, there's a sentence of the law, there's going to be judgment. But, an amazing thing and God started all this God did all this with judgment comes justice and justice is a product of something new called mercy mercy says I'm gonna give another chance I'm gonna give you a do-over I know you messed up I allowed you to mess up I gave you the privilege to challenge me and you did but I'm gonna give you another chance to work this over and so A judgment is tempered by mercy into something new called justice. We speak of the justice system. You know, well, burn that guy in the electric chair. I mean, burn him. You know, I want justice. I want justice. No, you don't want justice. You want justice when you're the one standing before the judge and he's about to pass a sentence. That's when you want justice. And what you're really asking for is mercy. And God is the one that introduced that into this world. And so justice intervened and a temporary solution was provided. Amen. In the form of a sacrifice, something else would die in its place. And with that temporary solution, a promise was made. It was given. Genesis 3.15 talked about the promise. The seed of the woman would come and bruise the head. Of the serpent. Hallelujah. Now, in the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, where we first meet God, where we first see Him, we see Him in context, and a character, an image of God is derived from the context. And the context that we see God is Father. Everybody say Father. Fathers and mothers. When you say fathers and mothers, you think two different things, right? Amen. I and mean, uh, many of you, hopefully, hopefully most of you grew up having both in your, in your home. It's not so much the case anymore. But um, <laughs> typically, <laughs> when you're a child and something's going on in the house, and, and, and you know, you, your father's going to bring the judgment down on you, and you run to Mama for mercy. <laughs> you try to, Mama get you off the hook. You know, Dad's about to take you to the back room and have a little talking with you. And and but you go to Mama, 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 help me. <laughs> Amen. My wife was always there to temper my judgment when it came time to uh, discipline the children. Amen. We think of fathers in this context. First of all, father in creation. He created everything. He is the beginning of that creation. So we see God in the context of creator. We see him in in fatherhood, father figure. We see him as provider. It's his job to provide what he has created and what he's made. He's to provide. But we see the father also as an authority figure. He's got all the authority. And some of you know very well, and your children know by now that when Daddy speaks, Mama can yell all day long, and that kid's still going to run out there and do that thing. But when Daddy says, Paisley! That's enough. <laughs> There's something about that authority, that tone, that figure, that that maleness, that that you don't get around that. You're not gonna bend that. That's the authority. Mama, I can work, but daddy, that's the law. So we see him as the authority, right? And we see fathers as disciplinarians, because it seems to always land on their desk, ultimately and eventually. Mama says to Daddy, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) It's not pleasant to be the disciplinarian. You don't want to, but you know that if it doesn't get taken care of, if something doesn't happen, that child is going to be spoiled, rotten, and will turn out to be not a good person in society. So disciplinarian, we see the Father as a disciplinarian. Now that is the context of the God of the Old Testament. And so uh, we see the character of God. That's, that's the perceived character of God from the Old Testament. That's the notion that we have. If all you had was the Old Testament to read and study, that's, that's what you would be basically thinking. Now, remember this. Satan is not God. He's not a God. He's not another God. He's not a lesser God. He is a fallen angel. He is the product of God's creation. He is the the genesis of that chaos that God allowed and permitted to come into the world. And so he is a creature that will be judged by God all of creation will be judged by God. All of human life will be judged by God. All of angel life will be judged by God. Satan is going to be judged by God. And because of that, because he knows it's coming, he hates judgment. He hates God who is the judge. He wants God to appear and to seem to be unfair. And that was his ploy in tempting Eve. You know, half God said you may not eat of all the trees of the garden. God is not fair. He knows that if you ate of this tree, you would be like him. You would know what he knows and you'd be like him. And God is not fair. So Satan is busy painting God using the Old Testament perception as unmerciful, as hateful, as vengeful, spiteful, murderous, judgmental in a word. Ugly. God looks ugly. And Satan's propagandists of today, the Bill Myers and the others who, uh, Richard Dawkins and the others who hate God and try to make God to be this, they're using the Old Testament. They don't talk about the love and the mercy of the God of the New Testament. They use the Old Testament to make God look like a genocidal, vengeful, murderous, spiteful, Uh, uh, ugly God. And who would want to serve a God like that? Speaking of judgment, uh, it's an interesting story about uh, Calvin Coolidge. And when he was vice president and he was presiding over the U.S. Senate, there was an altercation that arose between two senators and tempers flared. And one, one senator told the other senator to go straight to H-E double hockey sticks. And the offended senator stormed into his seat and he, he marched down the aisle and he stood before Mr. Coolidge who was silently leafing through a book and he said, Mr. President, he said, did you hear what he said to me? Coolidge looked up from his book and said calmly, you know, I've been looking through the rule book and you don't have to go. amen well you see that's what satan wants all of us to do is he wants all of us to go to hell that's what he's he's trying to get us to go to hell and he wants god to look like the bad god that's going to put us there amen but we've been looking through the rule book and i find that we don't have to go there amen that, that, that we do not have to we can be safe from there There was a Scottish lawyer who was a wicked man, and he once hired a horse, and uh, either by through an accident, a careless accident, or through ill usage, uh, the animal was killed. So the owner naturally insisted that uh, he be paid the value of of the horse together with uh, some compensation for the loss of its use and its time, and and the law acknowledged the, the liability. And, he, and so the lawyer said, yep, you know, yep, I, I acknowledge that that I'm liable and I'm perfectly willing to pay, but just at the moment, I'm a little strapped for cash. So would you accept a promissory note? Certainly, the owner said. Whereupon the lawyer uh, further uh, said that he must be allowed a long date. And, he, and the owner said, you you can fix the time of your date to pay me at your own time." So the wicked man (coughs) uh, uh, now drew up a contract making his debt payable on the day of judgment. Eventually the creditor took the matter to the court wherein in defense the lawyer asked the judge to look at the note and he did so and then he replied, The promissory note is perfectly good, sir, and this is the day of judgment. I decree that you pay this tomorrow. (laughs) So we're speaking of judgment, the Old Testament and the God of judgment. But things are not as depicted by Satan's evil propaganda machine because God is a God of two testaments. It's a God of two testaments. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, And such as, such trust have we, uh, through Christ to Godward, not that we were sufficient in ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is, is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit Giveth life, So he's going to talk about a New Testament. And later on down in verse 12, he says, Seeing then that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaketh the, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, Which veil is done away in Christ? Hallelujah. So we are the propitiators, the officials of a New Testament, of a new covenant. Not an old covenant. Veil covers the old covenant. The letter killeth. But we're of the spirit which gives life. And for those who stay in the Old Testament, the veil still covers them. And they don't see the Christ the god of the new testament now hebrews 7 and 22 says but you so but by so much was jesus made a surety or a guarantor of a better testament a better testament now testament testament is foundation it's foundation if you read exodus the 21st chapter you will be seeing where God is telling Moses to build an Ark of the Covenant. He's to make an Ark of the Covenant. It's to be so many cubits long, so many cubits broad, so many cubits high, to have a mercy seat on a lid on it. But inside, three times in that chapter, God tells Moses to put the testaments in. What, he doesn't say what the testaments are. He hasn't told Moses what the testaments are yet. But he says, put the testaments in the Ark of the Covenant. We know what those testaments were. They were a pot of manna, showing God's provision for the people of the Lord. They were Aaron's rod that budded, showing God's selection of, of the priesthood and the ministry and ordaining and leadership of the church. And then finally, they were the Ten Commandments, showing the law of God. By which man must live. And so the Ark of the Covenant is also in the Bible called the Ark of the Testimony. Now that is an interesting point. It's not just known as the Ark of the Covenant, that powerful box, that scary box that you dare not look at or dare not touch. Amen. The, 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 the mercy seat where God would meet with us and he would deal with our sin. But upon this dais of the throne, which was the mercy seat where God would sit well on the earth, Beneath that diocese throne was the foundation of our relationship with God, which is testimony. Testimony. Everybody say testimony. (laughs) Hallelujah. Without a testimony, without a testimony, we do not have evidence to stand upon. But if you go to the court of law and you give testimony in a law case, That is evidence, amen, that is accepted as legal and it is binding, it's evidence. God bound us to himself with a testimony that he would provide, that he would choose, and that he would guide us in the right way to go. Hallelujah. We don't just live for God, amen, just because, but we live for God because of a testimony that God has given us and that we have. Amen. That's evidence. God will take care of it. Hallelujah. And in this relationship that God the Father has with his own unique creation, we see him in the testimony of the old character, the old testament character, Father of creation, authority figure, and ultimate judge of all that he's made. Yes, he is all of that. Hallelujah. But Something changed. Hallelujah. Something changed. Amen. In the New Testament, which reveals to us the true nature of God, which is after judgment, mercy, and justice. Mercy and justice. Justice tempers judgment. You see, because God is balanced, He's balanced. And there are two testaments because there needs to be two things to have balance. One thing by itself is not balance, amen, but there needs to be something else, amen, to compare it to, amen, to balance it out. If all we had was the Old Testament, we'd be walking around with a veil over our face, bearing the of judgmental, a God, a God of anger, amen, we'd have all that authority, amen, that father creation, that authority figure, would be honest, we'd be all walking around with a heavy burden, hallelujah, but he's not the God of one testament, he's the God of two testaments, amen, and he brought in another (laughs) testament with a different character to level it out because he requires balance. The universe must be balanced. So the God of two testaments stepped out of his character as father in creation, as authority figure, as disciplinarian to become his own son. Well, yes, that's what, that's what they accused us of believing when the Trinity idea of the Godhead became orthodox they called those who believed that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh patripassionist patripassionist which means the father suffered and died amen now we know God himself cannot suffer and die amen but he stepped out of his character as father of the Old Testament and came into this world as son in the New Testament he, he 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 left the splendor of glory amen amen he, he, he put all of that behind him to become a son hallelujah and when that baby came and was born and laid in the manger no wonder the angels sang, amen because they were struggling to figure out what was happening here They knew something wonderful and tremendous and momentous was happening. But they didn't understand and still don't understand how the gospel works and what it's all about. They don't understand. They were struggling. And they sang to shepherds who were watching their flocks in the field at night. And the shepherds marveled at what they were seeing. And they went to find the babe where he lay wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger and paid homage to it. But they didn't understand. They didn't know what they were looking at and what they were dealing with they didn't understand. Mary uh, Mary kept things in her heart. She knew things were happening. Angel had spoken to her. Things were happening and yet she didn't understand everything that was going on. And as that babe grew up into a boy, hallelujah, and grew in the favor of God and men he had to grow into his own understanding of who he was. And it wouldn't be ultimately revealed unto him until the day of his baptism. Amen. When the spirit said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Amen. And he began to piece it together and have understanding, amen, of who he was. And he began to talk a lot about his father and who he was. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, what a story. What a story. What a story. And for three and a half years, he brought that down to this earth. And we today still struggle to understand. We don't understand. Amen. And the church in its history, in the veiled past of its history, lost its understanding. When they began to find another interpretation of the Godhead and describe God as a trinity, they lost what Jesus was. They failed to understand what he was. God manifest in the flesh. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. We still struggle to understand it today, to talk about it, to understand. How could God become one of us? But that's what he did. He became one of us so that he could understand us exactly, amen, as we were, so that we could know, amen, so that he could know exactly what it knew, what it felt like to be tempted, so that that he could deal with chaos, so that he could deal with conflict himself and overcome it and prove a resource against it he did all of that hallelujah amen so that he could become the first fruits of his own resurrection so that he could ultimately resolve the greatest conflict of all. Amen. That death that was a result of that judgment, amen, that divine judgment could be reversed for eternity. Amen. And those that die in Christ don't die. They just sleep for a little while. And they are rejoined. Let's stand together. Rejoined together with God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. It's a beautiful passage, and I close with this. Amen. The sign choir is going to come as soon as I I close this out. Hallelujah. But John chapter 1, what a beautiful chapter. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All that was made, the same was in the beginning with God. All that was made was made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Skipping on down, amen, to uh, verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Hallelujah. When they led Him into Pilate's judgment hall, they were still struggling to know Him. Pilate wrestled with a question, what is truth, Pilate said, But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, they were still fighting over who he was when they nailed him to the cross. And the Jews said, the Jews said, take that sign down, Pilate. But Pilate said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's who he said he was. I don't know whether he is or not, but put that up there. That's why he's dying, because he's the king of the Jews. Hallelujah. They struggled to know him. They didn't know him. His old disciples didn't know it. They didn't understand. They ran in fear. They denied his name. They ran and hid like rabbits in a hole. Hallelujah. But he came out of that tomb by himself with no help from anybody else. Amen. No one else believed in him until he came forth. Hallelujah. But he stood forth and he stands forth to this day. Hallelujah. But as many as received him, To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. We didn't know what it was. Couldn't understand it.
1: The glory
0: as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Hallelujah. When we celebrate Christmas, it's quite, the, quite different from the celebration that we have around Easter time, which is the celebration of his resurrection, the ultimate purpose for which he came. But at this time of the year, we celebrate the fact that he came. Amen. The fact that he came and the reason that he came and that they don't understand it. They still don't understand it. And the world doesn't understand it. They don't know whether to say happy holidays or Merry Xmas or Merry Christmas, amen, or whether to uh, to take down creches and, and, and manger scenes and put up Christmas trees and put a big guy in a fat suit, a red suit, and call him Santa Claus and make him the point of Christmas. They don't understand. They don't know. Hallelujah. But we know. Hallelujah. For we who have believed on his name, he's given us power to become sons of God. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.